Once a group of soldiers were undergoing training in combat, the drill sergeant quizzed one of the new recruits. What steps would you take if someone charged at you with a large knife? The young soldier replied, I would take big steps. Well, Luke chapter 7 starts with a soldier who takes a big step toward Jesus. You see, the Roman legion was the finest fighting force the world had ever seen. This centurion had never been defeated until now. He meets a foe that he can't conquer, and in response, he takes a giant step toward Jesus. Chapter 7 begins, Now when Jesus concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. A Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men and was divided into 10 cohorts of 600 men each. The cohort was further broken down into six centuries of 100 men. And a centurion was the leader of a century. This Roman soldier was the equivalent of our modern day sergeant. And sergeants are the backbone of any military. They're the epitome of a soldier. Sergeants are trustworthy and tough. They bark orders and they lead others. Unlike the brass, they fight in the trenches alongside their men. And as soldiers say, there is no rank in a foxhole. In the midst of battle, men look past superficial differences. Fighting for one's life bonds men together. Perhaps this servant, this centurion and his servant, Perhaps they had shared a foxhole or two along the way. Maybe this loyal aide had fought alongside this centurion and perhaps had saved his life at one point. Now this centurion is trying to return the favor. He's trying to save his life. The doctors say that this disease is incurable, that it'll take a miracle, but that's what the centurion sees in Jesus. You see, sergeants train men, they mold men, they lead men, they know men. Thus, this centurion comes to Jesus. He's heard enough about Jesus to know that he was no mere man. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Now, soldiers know to go through the proper channels. And this centurion realized that Romans were not accepted in Hebrew circles. This is why he solicited the help of his friends. He sends the Jewish leaders of the synagogue, the local synagogue, to represent him. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now, the Jews try to gain Jesus' attention by pointing to the centurion's good works and charitable deeds. He loves our nation. He's built us a synagogue. They portray this man as worthy of God's intervention. Yet understand, no human being is worthy or deserving of God's blessing. Anything we receive from Jesus is all about grace. Thankfully, Jesus suspected that there was more to the story. We're told in verse 6, Then Jesus went after them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. 
Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. This was actually opposite the attitude the Jews had represented. The centurion felt unworthy. See, the Jews portrayed his attitude as blessed because of me. But in actuality, he says, bless in spite of me. The centurion isn't trying to barter his goodness for God's blessing. And yet, how many of us approach God with that exact attitude? Lord, look at all that I'm giving you, all that I'm doing for you, all that I'm sacrificing for you, Lord. Now you should bless me. Realize God's blessing is never for sale. It's too valuable. In fact, in the eyes of God, your goodness is like filthy rags. God never plays tit for tat. Tit for tat ain't where it's at. None of us can earn God's kindness. All we can do is humble ourselves and trust in his grace. Mark Twain once famously said, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. <laughs> faith is not faith in my efforts or my merit or my performance. Saving faith, that is receiving faith, is the belief that God is willing to save me and bless me in spite of my sin and because of his great love for me. It's all about grace. And this was the centurion's faith. He says to Jesus in verse 7, But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, this centurion understood authority. Most soldiers do. He both gave and took orders. And he knew that Jesus had all authority, even over disease. And if Jesus ordered this illness to leave, it had to obey. Obviously, this, obviously this centurion had concluded Jesus' rank as commander-in-chief of the universe. His faith was not in his works, but in Jesus' word. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. You know, a lot of folks today know who to approach. They come to Jesus, but not how to approach him. The centurion did two things right. He trusted in Jesus' mercy, and he submitted to God's chain of command. The centurion didn't ask for a blessing until he had first bowed. He saluted Jesus and acknowledged him as commander. And when we approach Jesus, we should do the same. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples were with him in a large crowd. Now Nain was a Galilean village about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. Jesus and his disciples had left Capernaum. They were on the heels of a healing. It had just occurred the, the day before. And can you imagine that group having seen such a miracle? There was great joy and laughter and hope in their entourage. I doubt if anyone but Jesus noticed the freshly dug grave outside the city walls. 
And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. Now visit Israel's ancient ruins, and you'll learn how the cities designed their entrances. A city gate was a narrow portal that consisted of several tight right-hand angle passageways. The configuration prohibited an invading army from getting up ahead of steam and charging the gate, and it made it easier for the residents to defend their city. The drawback to these kinds of gates was congestion at rush hour. And on this day, a real snarl-up occurs in the gate of Nain. A funeral procession is coming out while Jesus and his crew are coming in. You've got a collision between a funeral procession and a party bus. A widow's dead son, her only son, meets God's only son. Again, the Lord of life is coming in. A corpse is going out. Now understand, a Hebrew funeral procession was led by a rabbi. He would proclaim the good deeds of the deceased. Behind the rabbi came the musicians and the mourners. They would be singing sad lamentations, awful dirges. And for the Jews, the louder the better. Then came the corpse on a wicker stretcher. Its hair and nails had been clipped. It was washed and anointed and wrapped in linen. Behind the corpse came the family and friends. And leading the way was this greatly grieved mother. Recently, this woman had lost her husband. We were told she was a widow. Now she's burying her son. This gal's living out a nightmare. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Few situations in life are as difficult to deal with as the death of a child. One bereaved dad once wrote, if your father dies, your past dies. But if your child dies, your future dies. It's hard for people to know the feeling, I'm sure. A child's death rips open a parent's heart and leaves a gaping hole. And yet Jesus understood. Jesus knew. He sees this woman who brought a child into the world and is now escorting that same child out. Jesus sees her pain. He knows her compassion. He has compassion toward her. And he tells her, do not weep. But he does more. Then he came and touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. What a colossal collision. Here life and death hit head on. Light slams into darkness. Pain and peace crash together. Sorrow and joy lock bumpers. A showdown occurs between the grim reaper and the resurrection in life. And Jesus commands a corpse, young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. Jesus crashes a funeral. He works a miracle. And the Lord of life spoils again the spades of the grave diggers. But notice the next line, the line that follows verse 15. And he presented him to his mother. 
It could be translated, he gave the boy back to his mom. What death had stolen from this mother, Jesus was able to give it back. You know, perhaps you're a parent who has a child who's been stolen. Not by death, thankfully not yet, but by sin or by Satan or by this wicked world. Understand, Jesus sees your pain. He has compassion on you. Weary parent, give your child to Jesus. He can overcome the enemy. He can raise up your child and in time present that child back to you. You know, even today, the same two crowds that we see in the gate of Nain still travel in and out of life's gate. Everyone can be grouped in with the hopeful or the hopeless in one crowd, there are those who laugh and love and sing and believe and walk with Jesus. In the other crowd are people who succumb to death even before they've died. They live in a state of despair. In which crowd do you travel today? I hope you walk with the Lord of life. Well, then fear came upon all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. How else do you account for a miraculous healing such as this and a corpse returned to life? And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now on the banks of the Jordan River, John the Baptist had proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. But since those early days, John had undergone some serious hardship. When John confronted King Herod over his wickedness, the vindictive ruler arrested him and jailed John in the Dead Sea prison, the fortress of Machaerus. It was the Jewish Alcatraz. It was a blistering, hot, desert dungeon. John knew that Jesus was Messiah, but Jesus didn't fit all of John's messianic expectations. See, John had been influenced by the prevailing notions of his day. He was looking for a Messiah who would right all wrongs and punish the wicked and overthrow the foreign occupation. Jesus seemed content with healing and helping and forgiving. What about some judgment, Jesus? That's what John's disciples were saying. John was confused. And so he sent for clarification. Verse 21. And that very hour, Jesus cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah 35, a passage known to speak of Messiah's ministry, telling that the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You see, Jesus was challenging John to realign his expectations according to the scripture. See, all too often, we have expectations of God that didn't originate with God. We think we know what God should and shouldn't do. 
And if the work of God doesn't match up with our presuppositions, we question his presence or his wisdom or even his power or his faithfulness. Once there was a man, he'd been a horrible husband, just a terrible husband. But he came one Thursday night to the Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain Men's Discipleship. And the guy was transformed overnight. He was determined to do better. And so the next night, he comes home early from work with flowers and candy for his wife. Rather than come to the garage as usual, he decides to ring the doorbell. He wants to go through the front door and speak to his wife. But when she answered and saw him, she just burst out crying. The husband said, honey, what's wrong? She replied, oh, it's been a horrible day. Billy broke his arm. A ball flew through the kitchen window. Susie made a deal on a report card. The bank called and I bounced two checks. While I was on the phone, I burned dinner. And to top it all off, now you come home drunk. See, often wrong expectations cause us to misinterpret someone's actions. And this was John's mistake. And Jesus challenges him, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. In other words, happy are the people who follow Jesus even when he doesn't follow their plans. Happy are those who will ad-lib when Jesus doesn't keep to their script. In still other words, if you want to dance with Jesus, you have to let him lead. Well, when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? John wasn't some flimsy, vacillating reed bending to the wind of public opinion. Verse 25, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft, raiment, in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. John was no fat cat living off the public purse. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. And now Jesus quotes Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, which predicted Messiah's forerunner. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. See, John was more than a mere prophet. The Old Testament spoke of him as Messiah's advance man. And then Jesus makes a most remarkable statement. Verse 28. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is quite an endorsement. Jesus is saying John was as righteous as any human could be in his own efforts. He was the most meritorious among men. But compared to those who have the righteousness of Christ, John is at the bottom of the barrel. Not even John's goodness begins to approach the righteousness that pleases God and that you and I have received in Christ Jesus. How we are blessed and accepted in the beloved. And John the Baptist was a kind of dividing line in Israel at the time. He revealed the hearts of the people. For we're told, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, 
not having been baptized by him. In rejecting John's call to repentance, the Jewish leaders had hardened their hearts to God. Verse 31, and the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. And here Jesus quotes what was probably a popular jingle that you might have heard on a Jerusalem playground in the first century AD. People say, play the flute and we'll dance. But the flute plays and no one dances. In other words, they talked a good talk, but no one followed through. And this was the Jews at the time of John and Jesus. They claimed to love God, but never acted accordingly. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Israel was fickle, and they were filled with excuses. See, they rejected John because he was too austere. He deprived himself of common pleasures. Whereas they called Jesus a drunk and a glutton because he enjoyed the God-given pleasures of a good meal or a fine wine. See, neither austerity or moderation satisfied the Jews. You couldn't please them. It's been said some people are more interested in looking for excuses than truth. That was certainly the Pharisees. And then one of them, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Now, an ancient Hebrew home was usually square with a courtyard in the middle. In the house of a rabbi, this courtyard was open to the students to gather and to listen to his teaching and discuss theology. The courtyard of a Pharisee was usually open to the public. A woman took advantage of that openness. For behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. It was a common custom at the time for women to wear an alabaster vial around their neck. These ceramic containers would hold perfume or an ointment. Verse 38, and this woman stood at Jesus' feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now remember, we're told that she was a sinner. She'd been a naughty girl. And everyone in the city knew of her soiled and sullied reputation. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And remember, the Jews believed in guilt by association. Religion differentiates between good and bad, clean and unclean, with the goal of avoiding the unclean. This Pharisee figured if Jesus was truly a holy man, he'd know not to touch a sinful woman. He could become unclean. Yet this points out an amazing trait about our Lord Jesus. He dared to touch and be touched by unclean people. 
His holiness didn't distance him from sinners. In fact, grace bridges the divide that religion creates. It reaches out to sinners. This is what drew the Pharisees' criticism. And beware, for you'll be criticized too if your love for sinners takes you to the wrong side of the tracks, causes you to associate with people that are viewed as unclean. Notice, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. But notice we're told Jesus answered Simon, yet no question was asked. Look back at verse 39. We're told Simon spoke to himself. Jesus had read Simon's mind. Now he confronts his callousness with a parable. Verse 41. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. In our currency, think about $80. And the other 50 denarii, or about eight bucks. One man owed 10 times as much as the other man. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Then Jesus asked, tell me therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. Travel in ancient Israel combined dirt roads and open-toed sandals. That's a tough combination. And thus it was common courtesy to keep a basin of water by your door, the door of your home, so that your guests could wash their dirty feet upon entering. Well, this Pharisee had invited Jesus for dinner, but never considered him more than a curiosity. For if he had thought of Jesus as his master or his teacher or even his friend, he would have humbled himself and washed Jesus' feet. Jesus continues, he says, you gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. None of these common courtesies had been given to Jesus by Simon, and yet the woman had lavished these things upon him. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Simon had been negligent towards Jesus. This woman had been extravagant. She showed gratitude. He had an attitude. Hey, the fruit of forgiveness, which is love, always sprouts almost immediately. Those who have been forgiven much will love much. When you're forgiven, you won't hold back. When you're forgiven much, you'll love Jesus with an extravagant love. And here's where Jesus drops the bomb, verse 48. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? I mean, this was the theological knuckleball. This is what confused the Jews. 
They were rightly taught that only God could forgive sin. So why was Jesus doing what only God could do? Was he claiming to be God? Well, indeed he was. Verse 50 tells us, And then Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Which brings us to chapter 8. Now it came to pass afterward that Jesus went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Who says men have a monopoly on ministry? Here, Luke chapter 8 lists the loyal ladies who supported Jesus. This was the first women's ministry. And it was unusual for women to play such a visible role in the ministry of a rabbi in ancient Israel. Usually women stayed in the shadows Some rabbis wouldn't even be caught dead speaking to a woman in public. Obviously, this was far from Jesus' approach. He valued women. Our Lord appreciated their gifts, and he gave women believers a prominent role in his ministry. And Luke here mentions three of these ladies by name. First was Mary Magdalene, who was delivered from seven demons Second was a woman named Joanna, wife of a politically important official in the court of King Herod. And third was Susanna, whose name means Lily. She must have been a beautiful lady. Hey, I believe the Bible teaches male leadership in the home and in the church. But that certainly doesn't mean that women can't also play a vital role and a vital part in ministry. These gals, and we're told others with them, played an instrumental role in what Jesus was doing. And then verse 4, Jesus tells us the famous parable of the sower. And when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and it was trampled down and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Seed that fell by the road failed to take root and was eaten by the birds. Other seed that landed on the rocks, its shallow roots were burned up by the sun. Seed that fell among the thorns were choked out. But the seed that fell on good ground ended up producing a tremendous yield. Well, then the disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is given in parables. That seeing they may not see. 
and hearing, they may not understand. You see, a parable is a teaching device that performs two contradictory purposes simultaneously. It blinds and it reveals. It opens some eyes while shutting other eyes. See, if you care little about spiritual truth and your heart isn't right toward God, then the meaning of a parable will sell over your head. It'll simply elude you. But if you're seeking God and you're hungry for God's truth, then the parable will hammer home the point in a way that you can grasp and understand. You see, it either blinds or it reveals. And in verse 11, Jesus interprets the parable of the sower. He begins, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The scripture, your Bible, God's word is like a seed. There's life in it. There's life in this book. Nothing can be done to the seed to cause it to grow, but to plant it in the right kind of soil. That's all that needs to be done. A seed has a vitality that comes from within. Just plant it in the right soil and watch it work. And the same is true with God's word. Spiritual growth isn't up to us. It's all God's work. We receive the seed and it changes us from the inside out. But we have to give it good ground. You see, the parable of the sower is one of Jesus' most important parables. It's really a seminal passage. Here he shares revolutionary concepts about God's kingdom that, that has been short shared nowhere else. First thing he says is that God's kingdom comes not with a pounding, but with a planting. Not with a harvest of judgment, but with a season of sowing. Not with force, but with faith. And not with a war, but with a word. See, the kingdom of God comes as a seed, and it takes root in people's hearts. But, and here's the second point, it can be resisted. And this was a revolutionary understanding to the Jews. For the Jews assumed that when Messiah came, he would take control of the nations and he would force the world to bow at his feet. Yet in this parable, Jesus says that God's kingdom won't take root in all hearts. It can be resisted. Its growth depends on the soil in which it's planted, on the condition of our hearts. Notice in verse 12, he explains, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The wayside was the ground trampled by travelers. It was the packed earth, the hard pan, like the insensitive hearts of some people around us. The word lands there, but it's eaten up by the devil and by doubt. Satan exploits the resistance and stubbornness that's already there. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, but believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. You know, there are other people who hear God's word. They hear his offer of peace and pardon, and they want it. But they fail to think through the implications. And when tough times come, their faith fails. Their faith never grows past a flirtation into a dedication. It never gets rooted in commitment. 
And then the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. These are the folks who get distracted by materialism. Oh, they have a spiritual longing, but money and pleasure are more important to them than a relationship with God. The tangible ends up choking out the spiritual. He says, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. You see, while hardness and shallowness and materialism can send a person to hell, humility and repentance and faith is what sends a person to heaven. It's the condition of our heart that determines the salvation of our soul. And this is why we need to plow up the hard ground of our hearts from time to time. Ever so often, we should aerate our hearts with repentance and humility and faith. Well, verse 16 tells us, No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. See, just shining your light for Jesus is not enough. Turning your life into a candle is only half the mission. Positioning that candle on a candlestick so all the world can see is the Christian's greater goal. And God will do just that for you if you're willing to rise up and act boldly. He'll put you in a place where your light can be seen. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Recently, I read a report about the proliferation of wiretaps and bugging devices and little miniature cameras. Be careful. You never know when you're being recorded. And yet, this is nothing new. According to Jesus, this has always been the case. For God is recording our every action. God is eavesdropping in on our every conversation. And one day, friends... All the skeletons are going to topple out of the closet. And then verse 18. Therefore take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. And here's an important principle. Spiritually speaking, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Hey, listen to God, receive from God, and he pours out more into your life. But turn a deaf ear to God, and you effectively shut off God's blessings. You cut yourself off from God's kindness. Jesus says, take heed how you hear with your heart this morning. Are you listening to God? And then verse 19, then his mother and brothers came to him. Now, notice Luke doesn't mention Jesus' stepdad, Joseph. We assume that by now, Joseph had died. According to Matthew 13, verse 55, after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph had at least four more sons and two daughters. And here, Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers track him down. They're concerned. They need to talk. But they could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Now Luke doesn't actually tell us their motive in wanting to see Jesus. 
Perhaps they could see that he was on a threatening course. They knew he was agitating the religious hierarchy and danger was on the horizon. John 7 verse 5 tells us that at this point, Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. Maybe they had never been told of his miraculous birth. Or perhaps they just refused to believe he was their brother. I mean, how can, you, how can he also be the son of God? I'm sure Mary saw his identity clearer. She had more information. And yet on Jesus' last visit home to Nazareth, he'd almost been thrown off a cliff. His brothers perhaps questioned his sanity. Mary cared about his safety. They both wanted to talk to him. Yet in verse 21, Jesus himself redefines his family. He answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Wow. And did these words hurt his mom? I'm sure they did. Did these words bother his brothers? You bet they did. But listen, you can't please God and not offend your unbelieving family. You can't do it. Jesus is saying that there are ties that run deeper than physical family, and you have to choose. Who are you going to offend? Your earthly family or your heavenly father? Earthly bonds last 60, 70 years, but God's family is eternal. It's been said blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. And here's the good news. Jesus is still adding to his family today. In fact, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can be part of his family as well. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I hope that today will be your day. He still, he still is seeking out followers he still is building up his family with sons and daughters. I hope you're one of them. Father, we thank you. 